and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. Okay, I actually have a confession to make before we get started. We have not actually been separated by distance this whole time since we last recorded because we met very briefly while getting vaccinated. So that was exciting. Yes, it was very exciting to see you face to face or rather mask to mask. And you also gave me a lecture on uh, French Canadian swear words. So that was interesting too. It was because I was reading X-Men comics and North Star kept turning up and swearing in French. And I was learning lots of unusual profanities and new languages. It was very interesting. Anyway, also since our last recording, I have been reading the Crier's War duology by Nina Varela. If you like your young adult fantasy with a big heap of robot overlords and forbidden romance, it's a very good time. I would definitely recommend it. Yes, and I just finished reading El Atsoe by Darcy Little Badger, which is an absolutely delightful urban fantasy young adult novel starring a Native American protagonist and with the best ghost dog that you'll ever encounter in fiction. However, we're actually here today to talk about a different book, The Unspoken Name. The Unspoken Name is an adult fantasy novel by A.K. Larkwood, published in 2020 by Tor Books. It follows Xorway, a young girl raised as the chosen priestess of a god known as the Unspoken One. On her 14th birthday, she's supposed to descend into the mountain where the Unspoken One dwells and offer her life to the god as her ultimate sacrifice. But on what is supposed to be her final day alive, a visiting stranger at the shrine of the Unspoken One reveals that he is Belfandros Sethane, a powerful mage, and offers her the chance to leave and live if she'll, if she'll serve him. Xorway accepts and becomes wrapped up in Sethane's personal quest. Unfortunately, it's not a happily ever after for Xorway because the influence the Unspoken One has isn't easy to shake, and Sethane is perhaps not the noble man she believes him to be. Sethane is a powerful mage exiled from his home world of Tlanthothe, who is one, trying to regain his rightful place as a chancellor and seek revenge on the man responsible for his exile, and two, is searching for an artifact known as the Reliquary of Pentravesa. However, Orana, a powerful necromancer librarian from the Temple of the Unspoken One, and also Sethane's ex-girlfriend, also wants the reliquary for herself. Other important characters include Talasuras Charosa, the nephew of Sethane's archenemy, who joins Xorway on her quest to find the reliquary because he has the hots for Sethane, and Shafmili, a powerful mage that Xorway meets and crushes on. Basically, creepy gods, the multiverse, necromancy, dubious wizard father figures, magical progenies, a well-meaning lesbian orc with a sword. It's a good time. It's a very good time. I finally read this book after you kept telling me it was read up my alley for like weeks or months. And it totally was. And I am really not a fool for not reading it earlier, except I guess if I'd read it earlier, we wouldn't be doing this podcast episode. So it is good I read it now. But it was just genuinely so fun. It's this really good mash of like science fiction and fantasy. It just like utterly smashes like that binary of genres which I thought was very fun. It's not like wizards or spaceships. It's like, no, there are wizards and they're on spaceships, which is just very fun. There's good magic and world building, which is super cool. There's lots of like creepy gods and hopping around the multiverse and the characters are super interesting. I love Kasorway and Sethane. It's just like very funny. Also, there were multiple times when I laughed out loud, just like a very fantastic, unique, fun fantasy book that feels very fresh and innovative. Oh yeah, I really loved this book. 
It has elements of other fantasy novels like swords and terrible wizards and scheming and prodigies and fantasy races, but it feels fresh and unique. And it is really funny. I found myself laughing so much more than I thought I would. It also has excellent fantasy names. They're fun and cool, but they aren't totally impossible to pronounce. And also as someone who loves books with cults and dead gods, I felt very well fed by this book. Uh, it was also fun to read a book from the perspective of a character who would typically be considered the evil minion in other fantasy novels. And I really liked the explanation of why Xorway follows Satine and stays with him, even though he's rather morally ambiguous. The other characters are also a lot of fun. Chef Mealy is the magical prodigy darling of my heart. And I love Tal, but dear God, he needs to make better life choices. The romance was also really good. Sword lesbian and magic lesbian, really good content. Basically, it's just a fun time. I loved the whole thing, really. Yeah, I definitely want to dive more into what I specifically liked about this, but I think maybe we should do like a brief rundown of characters before we go further. I think we're going to talk about sort of some general non-spoilery stuff we liked about this book and then go into kind of more spoilery parts later on. So we'll start off with some kind of characters to lay the groundwork. Like we mentioned, the main character is Kasorwe. Pai describes her very concisely as a lesbian orc with a sword, which is true. She is like some kind of non-human fantasy race that has like gray skin and tusks. I think she's supposed to be an orc. And she escaped from a death cult at the age of 14 and she works for Sethene now as kind of his enforcer. She honestly just like wants Sethene to love her and respect her at the start of the book. She doesn't really have like family because her whole family died in a plague when she was young and she was raised in this temple to become a human sacrifice so people were always kind of like distant from her and she really just like wants Sethene's like approval in kind of a father figure way and we follow her from the ages of 13 to 22 because this is a book that like takes place over quite a long time and like you mentioned she's the kind of character who in other novels would be kind of like a background minion she just is kind of the enforcer for Sethene. She has a sword and she follows his orders and she's helping him on like his quest, both his revenge quest and his search for the reliquary. Except like she's the narrator and the protagonist in this book, not just like a one note bad guy that the main hero might have to fight to get to the actual antagonist or something. And it kind of digs into like her motivations and like why she follows Sethene and is this kind of subservient character at the start of the book. There's like this really kind of sweet bit that at, in the very beginning where Kasorwe is like thinking about her ideal version of the future and she just like she wants to help Sethene and be like his loyal right hand, the one person he trusts in the world. And you kind of know from the start that Sethene is maybe like a little bit tricky, but she's also just like a really endearing character and I loved her a lot. I also think that Sorway would probably get along great with Gideon Nav from Gideon the Ninth because they're both sword lesbians who encounter necromancy and date magical prodigies. So like that was a fun connection for me when I was reading it. I still have not read Gideon the Ninth, despite everyone telling me to because I'm bad at getting around to things. So I'll just have to kind of trust you on that. Oh yeah, but like you mentioned, Sorway is a lesbian. This is a fantasy novel that has like a fair number of like gay and lesbian and bisexual characters in the cast. It doesn't really seem to be like an issue in the world. People just kind of hang out like all their interpersonal problems come from like terrible communication and necromancy, not like homophobia. Um, there is kind of a funny part where someone asks Sora, like at the start of the book, what she looks for in a man. And she's just like, um, tall, which is kind of funny. Laugh. Yeah. No, I just, I love Sora. She's like a really good narrator. And I was just like immediately endeared to her at the start. There's also... Sethene, who is 
the morally ambiguous evil wizard man father figure of your nightmares. He's like kind of an elf, sort of, I think. Xorway's kind of an orc and he's kind of an elf because he has pointy ears. Um, he rescued Xorway from this cult and he's the reason that she gets involved in this whole quest. But he's also kind of manipulative. He's definitely manipulating Tao and he once dated Arena and kind of like discarded her. And we get the sense that maybe he doesn't necessarily have Xorway's best interests at heart, but mostly his best interests. He's looking for this magical object called the Reliquary. And he's generally kind of like this charismatic, chaotic, very deeply driven character that we start off maybe trusting and then it slowly becomes clear over the course of the book that he's not that great of a person or even not even that slowly from the start you're maybe like a little suspicious of him like I was. A third important character is Tal who's Sethane's kind of other main minion. He's a disaster boy from a rich family but he doesn't get along with them. His primary motivation for following Sethane is that he's madly in love with him, which like, oh god, Tal, please have better life choices. He's got a bit of a rivalry with Xorway because they're both jealous of the, um, Sethane's attention to the other one, and they really want to be seen as his right hand, and they want the other person to be, like, lesser. The best way that I can think to describe his relationship with Xorway is like, it's like the opposite of gay-lesbian solidarity, like, gay-lesbian hostility. Anyway, they have a delightfully antagonistic relationship. It's very funny. It is very funny. It's like almost sibling rivalry, but not quite because obviously Tal's relationship with Sethane is like anything but familial. But I kind of like that they're a guy and a girl who hate each other in a book and there's nothing romantic about it. There's no like underlying sexual tension. They just get on each other's nerves. Yeah, it's, it's extremely funny. Another character is Orana. She is a librarian from the Temple of the Unspoken One who knew Xorway back when she was going to be the sacrifice for the Unspoken One. She serves as a bit of an antagonist because she's also in search of the reliquary and she serves a god that Xorway ran away from. She's a pretty powerful necromancer in her own right, which is very fun to read about. She's also, also Sethane's ex, which is revealed in a kind of hilarious way because Xorway absolutely cannot imagine Sethane dating. And when she learns that he once had a relationship with Orana, she's like, oh God, I can't believe this. And it's very funny. Yeah, it's like the whole thing. You're like, I don't want to imagine my parents dating. This is weird, except your parents in this version are an evil necromancer librarian and a dubious wizard man on a quest. There's also, last but not least, because she is first in my heart, or at least a very close second with Xorway, is Shafmili, who, like Pai mentioned earlier, is this magical prodigy that Xorway meets. She's kind of from this, like, culty empire, and she's what's called an adept, or a trained mage. She can channel the magic of this chaos goddess called Xenandor, but she's always in danger of being corrupted, so she kind of walks this fine line from being a powerful magician and also being someone who at any moment could turn bad, have to be taken out. And like raised as a weapon is kind of like my favorite trope ever. It pops up a lot in like superhero comics and it's just my shit. I love when characters are like raised as weapons, but then gain kind of individuality and personhood and experience love and friendship. So Shafmili kind of falls into that because she has this romance with Xorway that I really adored. <laughs> also, Tal doesn't like Shafmili and describes her as looking like a weasel that's just bitten into a nice refreshing lemon. Um, I got this book from the library, so I was like sticky noting basically all the funny parts and all the interesting parts and all the creepy parts, and I had so many sticky notes of funny quotes by the time I was done. Tal does not like Chef Mili that much, which is sad because I love Chef Mili with all my heart. 
Yes, I love Tal, but he is not valid for not liking Chef Neely. I'm also a huge fan of characters that are like magical prodigies and also characters raised with weapons, and she fits neatly into both of those. She also has a fun relationship with Xarway. They first meet when they're like running through some ancient ruins in another world being chased by zombies. It's a ton of fun. Uh, the world that she is from is very obsessed with order and purity, and it gave me some sort of sci-fi dystopian vibes. And there's also kind of an interesting parallel to her world and Xorway's escape from a death cult when she was younger. The um, empire that Shafmili is from, the Karzashi, kind of gave me Star Wars vibes almost. Like I said, I feel like this book kind of smashes the binary between the science fiction genre and the fantasy genre and sort of mixes up elements of both for this unique story that is very fantasy tinged, but also has like spaceships and the multiverse, which are very science fiction things. And the culture that Shafmili is from seemed kind of science fiction tinged to me, which I thought was kind of cool. I like the unique flavor of like mixing those two genres together. Yeah, since we're talking a bit about world building, should we move on to that and like the multiverse and the magic system and the unspoken name? Yes, because there's so much there that I really liked and want to talk about. I just thought the world building this was super fun and expansive. I also just like that A.K. Larkwood doesn't really beat around the bush. She's just like, you are here for some death cults and creepy gods and wizards, and I will give them to you immediately, like within the first couple of chapters. You're just like diving straight in and not in a confusing way, just in a like, this is so fun and I'm enjoying it way. It just like has a really cool take on magic that I liked in that people can channel godly magic, but it takes this physical toll that can be like eventually deadly on you. So there's always this kind of balance between the power that you can get and also the fact that it's shortening your lifespan, which is just excellent. There's a bit where Sethane is explaining magic to Kasorway and he kind of talks about how even the nicest god brings with it this well of divine power that humans really don't have the ability to channel because we just have these physical limitations on our bodies and how humans have this desire for power that kind of outstrips the limits of our own bodies and how like therefore people like Shafmili or Sethane who channel magic are always kind of paying the price and are always reminded that they're like they're anchored in human flesh that is frail and like can't actually hold all this power from magic even if we strive for it which is just like mm, themes of greed and magic very good. Yes I loved the magic system in this. One thing that I don't like in fantasy novels is where the characters can do like incredible miraculous things without any kind of cost. And in this case, there's definitely like a physical and mental toll that doing a lot of magic does on characters. And I like that because it makes the stakes feel much more real. It doesn't feel like they can just wave their hand and suddenly solve all their problems because they have to work for it and they can't do everything. And I also just am a huge fan of fantasy books where you can like channel a god to achieve magic. It's just a really cool concept. It feels very Dungeons and Dragons, actually. This book kind of reminded me of like, a really fun campaign of D&D. If you're playing as a cleric, you channel the magic of a god, and it kind of reminded me of that. Like we said earlier, Sethane's looking for this object called the Reliquary of Penchavesa for most of the book. And Penchavesa was this powerful mage who was favored by a now deceased, or at least like now greatly diminished, stake goddess called Ariskaval. And Penchavesa's reliquary contains like his secrets and knowledge and magical plans, and possibly ways to get around the limitations that humans have in regards to channeling the magic of a god. So Sethane wants it because he thinks the information contained within the reliquary could make him more powerful and kind of allow him to push past his limits and not take the toll of magic. So you understand like why he wants this because it's established pretty early on that 
you can be a powerful magician, but it will take this huge toll on you. Also, there's a super funny line about how Sethene gets his magic by channeling a patron goddess. And at one point, Kasorwe is just kind of like discussing this and says, women of a certain age loved Sethene, even when they were giant snakes or evil rocks, which is like in reference to one god takes the form of his giant rock and one is in the form of a giant snake. And I just liked it because it kind of combines this really cool world building with all this sort of fun, irreverent sense of humor, which is just like peak fantasy. I love it. Mm -hmm. I hate it when fantasy books take themselves incredibly seriously. So it was delightful to see like the characters poking fun of their own situations in their world sometimes because that's something that people do. Also, there's necromancy in this book. And I really thought the take on that was kind of fun as well. Orana has kind of control over zombies and she brings back people from the dead to serve as her minions. But there's also a really cool, unique bit where she uses her magic on a living human because we're all full of like dead and dying tissue at any given moment, which is really cool. And you never think about it because there are a lot of fantasy books where there are characters who are necromancers who can raise zombies or bring people back from the dead. But that's kind of a fun, unusual spin on it where it's like, not only can you control already dead people, but you can control the dead matter within living people, which is just like, ooh, super creepy and cool. And I really liked it. <laughs> Someday I am going to get you to read Gideon the Ninth because I think you would love the necromancy in that book. It would be very much up your alley. As well as that, I appreciated that this book doesn't do the evil races thing that's common in a lot of other fantasy books such as Lord of the Rings. Xorway's race isn't explicitly named in the book, but they have tusks and gray skin, so they seem to be somewhat orc-like, whereas Tal and Sethene are from a more elf-like race with pointy ears. However, both of these groups of people are fleshed out. No one is portrayed as being evil just because they're from a certain species. It's just like having a different hair color than someone else. And I appreciated that because even in a lot of iconic fantasy series, they kind of fall into the trap of being like, oh, well, if you're from this fantasy series, that automatically makes you evil. And I, I don't like that very much. And I appreciated this book somewhat defied it by having a complex and interesting main character who was also an orc. Yeah, because orcs as a species were created to be evil in Lord of the Rings. And Xorway's not an orc, really. And this book isn't Lord of the Rings. It's not like an example of plagiarism or something. But she is kind of this like, almost brutish character who has like gray skin and tusks and those are kind of things that in a lot of fantasy books might be used to visually cue a bad guy but instead she's the protagonist and we see like her internal life and her motivations and she's like a complex person not just kind of like a minion with a sword who's evil and we have to fight her and the same thing kind of goes for characters like Tal and Sethene who are complicated and not like reduced down to being like, well, they're this fantasy species. So they have this kind of trait and they act like that. And it's just much better and more complex that way. So do we want to maybe get into some more spoilers about this book and our thoughts on things that happened later on in it? I think there is a lot to talk about in regards to this book without actually spoiling what happens at the end or near the end. But there's also kind of some fun stuff I'd like to unpack that definitely is spoilery. So if you don't want to get spoiled for the unspoken name, maybe pause now, go read it, come back or something like that. It's good. You won't regret it. One thing I wanted to talk about is sort of the parallels between Xorway and Shafmili having grown up in cults because like we said, Xorway starts off the book being raised as a priestess in a temple and she's supposed to become a human sacrifice. And Shafmili, she meets later on as an adult after she's served Sethene for several years, and she meets Shathmili while she's exploring a ruined monument, and it's supposed to house the reliquary. 
But there's this moment where Sorway picks saving Shuthmili's life over possibly retrieving the reliquary and bringing it back to Sethene and like achieving his respect and completing the quest. And that kind of throws a wrench in the whole thing because I think Sorway sort of sees some of who she was previously in Shuthmili because Shuthmili is also being raised apart from other people because of her connection to a god. Not that she's like supposed to be a human sacrifice, but that she can channel Xenandor's magic. And there's always sort of this balancing act between powerful magic and also the fact that it could corrupt her and everyone's kind of scared of her, but they also sort of respect her. But like Sorway was when she was being raised in, a, in the temple, people don't really treat Shafmili as a person. They treat her kind of more as a weapon or a potential liability. So Sorway sort of sees, I think, sort of a kindred spirit in Shafmili. And that leads to Sorway picking Shafmili over Sethene in his quest for the reliquary long enough for them to kind of get thrown together. I love the romance between Sorway and Shafmili. For one, it's very well written and sweet, but I also appreciated the character parallels because Sorway is a character that has broken away from the people that raised her and the god that tried to claim her and is at least attempting to become somewhat more of her own person, although she still serves Sethene, whereas Shafmili is still like pretty hard in the grip of the empire that raised her and like very firmly believes that she is a human weapon and is a liability and that if it's necessary, uh, they will have to like put her down if she becomes out of control and channels too much of her goddess, but her relationship with Xorway helps her kind of come to terms with the fact that she isn't an inherently bad or corrupt person, and that maybe the empire that tries to control her is actually the bad guys. So it's a good romance because they work well together as characters, but they also like help each other grow and change. Yeah, and that's really how the best romances work. And even if this isn't like a romance with a capital R, it's very much genre fiction that just happens to have a romance in it. The romance does kind of help along the plot and the characters because it's all woven together. There's also a really funny line regarding how Shafmili is viewed by people from like Karzash, the Empire, where Xorway is confronting Saldu, who's kind of like this guy enforcer who wants to bring Shafmili back into the fold of the Empire. And he says, you may use a sword to cut bread, said Saldu, with the confidence of a man who had never handled a sword. That does not make it other than a weapon. And it really combines kind of both like the humor that I mentioned that I really liked about this book and was such a pleasant surprise, but also this kind of messed up attitude towards Shafmili and her place in the Karzashi Empire as someone with magic, because they're a culture that's very obsessed with purity and kind of piety, and they see Xenandor as a corrupting influence, and it's not a great thing that Shafmili can channel her, even though her power is important and can like help keep the empire strong, they also don't really view her as a person. Mm -hmm. The ultimate fate that awaits Shafmili if she stays with the empire is that eventually she'll become like integrated into a hive mind of other adept mages and she will lose her personality and like who she is and just become like one of many people. And she's been raised to believe this is the best thing that could happen to her because this way she can like help the empire and not fall to the corrupting influences of her goddess. But meeting Xorway helps her develop a sense of individuality 
and it helps her figure out what she wants, what kind of person she wants to be and how she wants to use her magic. And in the end, she breaks away from the empire with Xorway and Xorway breaks away from Sethene and the two of them choose each other over the forces that would try to control them. And it's just very good and I loved it a lot. So Xorway obviously has broken away from her life as a human sacrifice, but she's still following Sethene and she still owes him her lo- she still kind of thinks that she owes him her life and she also doesn't really want to go serve anyone else because he's like her dubious father figure almost but later on when she's kind of more self-aware she starts to realize that she doesn't necessarily want to follow Sethene and he uses people frequently like he's used her but she also kind of knows that people might only value her because of her proximity to Sethene and her knowledge of her secrets so she's still kind of stuck with him And that means there's less of a good guy versus bad guy format. And it's more like realizing that the good guy is actually the bad guy. So a lot of Sorway's emotional development over the story is learning to break away from Sethene and gaining her own independence while also still grappling with magic and the long shadow that the Unspoken One has cast over her life. And, you know, trying to help Shathmili and stop her from being integrated into a super creepy hive mind. But there is sort of this underlying character arc of learning who you are and what you want without serving someone, whether that person is a god or just kind of an ambitious wizard who sees you as a really helpful enforcer. And I think Sethene does care about Xorway to some extent because he saved her life when he wasn't really under any obligation to. But I also think he sees her as a useful tool because she's deadly loyal to him and has killed for him. And it's, I think, useful to have someone like that. So it's kind of a complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not a simple relationship yet because Sethene did save her from the Unspoken One and basically raised her from the ages of 14 to 22. But he also teaches her to be an enforcer, teaches her to kill and spy for him. And he's not afraid to use her like he uses other people. And over the course of the story, she does realize that like, Maybe Sethene doesn't have my best interest in heart. He wanted me to pick saving the reliquary over saving a living human being, and I chose wrong, and he is mad at me for that, but I think I made the right decision. And so she has kind of a complex journey of realizing that maybe she shouldn't rely on Sethene and just blindly follow him. I think the first moment when this really starts to unfold is when Sethene returns to his home of Tlantotha and he kills the man who had him exiled just like brutally and straight up because he wants revenge and he wants his place as the chancellor back. And Xorway doesn't really see anything wrong with this at this moment, but the way the narrative describes him being so single-minded and he doesn't hesitate, he just kills this guy. And I think that's really the moment when you start to be like, oh, maybe this guy isn't so great. Like, yes, he's a better alternative than becoming human sacrifice, but He's also not the best alternative out there. As well as Xorway breaking away from Sethene a bit, her relationships with other characters that start out a bit more antagonistic start to evolve and become more complex and she becomes allies with other people. She teams up with Orana at one point, even though she abandoned the god that Orana still happily serves, which is uh, definitely something that Xorway wouldn't do at the beginning of the novel. But over the course of the story, she develops enough as a person to like, be willing to team up with Orana. Though I think it's a pretty reluctant alliance because Orana is still not a great person because she's a necromancer and she's also complicit in human sacrifice. And I think that she is someone 
who cares about getting revenge on Sethene and cares about her own power. Just because she's against Sethene doesn't also mean she's a great person as well. Oh, totally. It's just interesting to see Sarway go from like someone who completely hates the unspoken name and follows Sethene's orders without question to someone who's able to think on her own a little bit more. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely think reluctant alliances between characters is always like really fun to read about. And the fact that Arana and Sorway don't really get along or respect each other, but are sort of like, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of philosophy makes for a really fun second half of the book to read. Also, Sorway's relationship with Tal changes a lot throughout the book because they start off just kind of like disliking each other, even though they work for the same guy and they have the same goals and they're on the same quest, looking for the same artifact. They just really don't get along in ways that are often very petty. They start to get over their dislike of each other a little bit, I think because they both realize how they've been used by Sethene. Sorway starts to kind of have the realization that Sethene is not going to value her the way that she wants. And Tao already knows in his heart that Sethene is not going to value him the way that he wants. So they become kind of increasingly cynical of Sethene and his motivations. And they kind of end up becoming this reluctant team up that was just like very fun to read. I loved the development of Sorway and Tao's relationship because they're extremely funny at the beginning of the book. The way that they just like constantly argue and try to one-up each other and get themselves on the good side of Sethene while the other one's on the bad side is really entertaining and delightful. But it's also fun when they begin to like respect each other a bit more and understand where the other one is coming from. And it's just fun to see the characters develop. I hope that when the series continues, we'll get to see more of Tal and Sorway's relationship with him. Yeah, I think that'd be very fun. I'd especially like to see what they're like out from under the thumb of Sethene because there is supposed to be a sequel. So presumably we'll kind of see more of their adventures. And also in terms of spoilery things, now that we are definitively discussing those, I really did shriek <laughs> when Tal revealed that he was actually like not unrequited love with Sethene and had been like sleeping with him for three years. I did not see that coming because you do get Tal's perspective a little bit and he comes off like someone who just like has an unrequited thing for Sethene. And he's like, oh, actually, no, it's not unrequited. It's just like not the romantic relationship with like a real heart that I want. And I was like, wow, okay, that was a plot twist I didn't see coming. Oh yeah, I hollered at that part. That also kind of shows that Sorway is a little bit oblivious and naive when it comes to romantic relationships because she was just as blindsided by that revelation as I was. It was definitely a trip. I don't think Sorway is particularly in touch with her feelings. Oh no. In terms of other plot twists, I also thought it was kind of funny that Sethene turns out to be Pentravesa, but he kind of didn't remember this. <laughs> like, he's not intentionally lying about it. He just is so old that he sort of forgot about it for a while, which is just a really funny concept. Oh yeah, I know if I was immortal, I would constantly forget things about myself all the time. It was fun, but it was also a fun plot twist because they've been chasing the reliquary of Pentavesa for so long, but we don't actually know very much about Pentavesa. And then the book is like, psych, actually, it was Sethene all along. He just didn't remember. The reliquary of Pentavesa, like we said, belongs to this mage named Pentavesa who lived a really, really, really long time ago. And his patron goddess was this snake goddess who wasn't killed, but her power was kind of diluted and diminished and spread across the multiverse. So she's sort of like alive and eternally suffering and people like often draw on her pain and stuff. But Pentavesa was sort of her favorite and the most powerful. 
but he's also been diminished because she's been diminished. And I think that's why Sethane has kind of forgotten who he is. And he knows that he just needs the reliquary, but he doesn't actually remember why he needs it. And it turns out in the end that the reliquary doesn't contain any like blueprints or secret knowledge or plans. It contains his heart and Sorway trades the reliquary and the heart within it to Pentravesa slash Sethane kind of for freedom. And she also takes like these magical gauntlets that he uses to control his magic and gives them to Shathmili because another sort of subplot conflict in regards to Shathmili is that even if she leaves the empire, she might only live until she's 40 because her magic takes such a strong toll on her body. But if she stays with the empire and joins their creepy hive mind, she could live till the ripe age of like 80 or 90, but she would lose her sense of self because they would join her together with other trained adepts to become part of this hive mind, which is just like very creepy. Like there are other members of the hive mind that we encounter and they have no sense of individuality, no personality. Like they're alive and there is a mind in there, but it's not you. So it's kind of like a type of death. So Shothmili is really stuck between a rock and a hard place in that she could have a life with independence and her own personality, but she would probably die young or she could give up her sense of self and her independence and live for like a really long time. And it's just like a very good moral conflict that stressed me out so much. Mm -hmm. This book is mostly fantasy with some touches of humor, but occasionally it gets a little bit horror. Like when we're talking about the unspoken names, sacrifices or necromancy or the hive mind of the empire. I found them quite creepy because a couple of the other hive mind people turn up and when you think about Chef Mili joining them and like losing her personality, it's a very compelling reason for Xorway to try to convince her to abandon the Empire and like split with the people that have trained her. So I enjoyed that part, even if it was quite freaky. Also, the bit when they go down into the mountain and they encounter the other previous sacrifices to the Unspoken One was very creepy. Like, I love some creepy gods, but I'm also kind of a chicken. I don't read horror. So I definitely, like, got some shivers reading that part, but in a good way because it was well-written. I did like that part because throughout so much of the book, uh, Xorbe is kind of haunted by this idea that if she had done what she was expected to do, she would have gone into the mountain as a sacrifice and never come out. And they don't really know what happens to the girls that go into the mountain as a sacrifice. So when we actually like do go in there and see it, it's both satisfying and creepy. Because Sorwe returns to the temple that she was raised in as a child at one point because she wants to seek answers from a priestess because the young girl who's raised as a human sacrifice is also kind of an oracle who can channel the god and answer questions. So earlier on in the book, Sethane comes to the temple because he wants to seek answers about the reliquary. So she returns to the temple to seek her own answers and encounters the current young girl who's being raised, who will, as like the bride of the unspoken one, and will one day probably walk into the mountain and never return. And I'm very curious if that's going to be explored more in the sequel. Like, is Xorway going to like tear down the whole temple and free future generations from incoming human sacrifices? Well, actually, I keep saying human sacrifice, but they're not human. <laughs> they're like orcs. So. It's still the sacrifice of killing a living person. And personally, if Xorway wants to tear down the temple of the unspoken name and yell at this god for trying to kill her, then like I totally support her in that. Yeah, I would I would definitely support her. But I thought the way that gods were portrayed in this was very cool and creepy and 
very good in a fantasy way. Obviously, it's not like our kind of modern religion because people can channel the gods in tangible ways and they know that they're real, but they're almost not like gods. They're just like very powerful beings. They call them gods, but one of them is a giant snake. So they're definitely not our idea of gods, but I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, A.K. Larkwood has said a few times in interviews that one of her inspirations for the book was the novel The Tombs of Adewan by Ursula K. Le Guin, which also features like a young magical woman raised by a creepy cult who is rescued by a wizard. And I guess her inspiration for this book was sort of like, well, what if the wizard that rescued you was kind of shitty and manipulative, actually? Which is kind of a fun twist on a classic trope of like, you get rescued and suddenly everything is good. But actually for Xorway, it just makes her life really complicated. Right, yeah, because you could have told this story in a different way where it all builds up to the day when Xorway is supposed to walk into the mountain and never return. But instead, the story actually starts with that and it asks, okay, who are you? if you're not being raised to die. And Xorway's answer for that is that she kind of turns herself into someone who lives to serve. And then over the course of the book has to learn who she really is without a, like a purpose in life tied to someone else. She has to learn who she is not as the bride of the unspoken one or as Sethene's right-handed enforcer, but just as like Xorway, her own person, which mm, very good, tasty themes of personhood and identity. I love reading about it. We do love those themes of bodily autonomy and free will and choice in fantasy novels. Yeah. I definitely will be reading the sequel to this. It wraps up pretty well. The Unspoken Name, I think, is a little bit unusual in terms of its length and pacing because a lot of fantasy books, you know, they tell maybe like a third of a story or half of a story so they can have a sequel or two sequels. But this one kind of tells a complete story. Like it definitely wraps up a lot of the central conflicts but there are some little threads that are left dangling that I can imagine being explored in the sequel. And there's probably new worlds to hop to and new creepy gods to confront or old creepy gods returning to continue to confront. And I, I'm definitely going to be picking up the sequel when it comes out because I really enjoyed this. It just felt like very fun and fresh. Oh yeah, I will 100% be picking up the sequel to The Unspoken Name because I want more of my sword girl and wizard girl romance and I want more giant snake gods and more tribal wizards and I'm sure that AK Larkwood will deliver. Yeah my my general life philosophy is that the best romantic relationships in fiction are between someone who has magic and someone who just has like a big honking sword and the unspoken name just really fits that to a T. And with that we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, follow us on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, or on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, or send us questions at neverthetwinsshallmeet.tumblr.com, or shoot us an email at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com.